Ben. What up, what up? What up, what up? Welcome back to Dybex Doing Things. Welcome back. We've been not AWOL, not absent, but we've been busy. Not even a hiatus, but we've we just been around. <laughs> Yo, and I, and I will be the first to admit that I experienced a heavy dose of burnout towards, man, the end of May. Uh, and I was able to, I was fortunately able to go on some vacations, celebrate my mom's 60th birthday. Shout out mom. I was able to celebrate my wife's 30th birthday. Shout out Erica. Like big moments, like back, back to back. And uh, some good friends got married. And now I'm kind of excited to be back in the rhythm, back doing the work. And yeah, we've got some cool summer stuff coming up. We've got some good pod interviews. We've got some cool partnerships to announce. We've got some scholarships we're donating for the first time. Man, we're, we're doing, uh, we're doing things. No, really. You be, and I think this is you getting out after the pandemic. It's probably nice to just like actually be able to celebrate those events, be there in person, really uh, just, I don't know. It, it feels like that veil is coming off a little bit, that, that lift from that uh, bad season. I kind of want to forget 2020 ever happened sort of, but. Man, and like real trauma and, you know, real, uh, you know, from a, I don't know, it, it's been hard. Also, we got to be careful because like the pandemic's not over everywhere else, you know, and that's, I think, another another thing that's just wild uh, about, about the world is like, you know, in America, we're kind of like way moved past it. You know, I, I went to a movie theater for the first time uh, uh, the other day, which was honestly so good. I love the movies. It was good to be back in the theater. But, you know, it's, it's important to just keep in mind that not only did like 600,000 people in America die, but elsewhere in the world, like they're still really dealing with heavy lockdowns in places because they don't have enough vaccines or not enough people have been vaccinated. Anyway, so don't forget, don't forget those things. Absolutely. The, yeah, no, we've got, be safe. Um, yeah, you got to be safe uh, for sure. And, you know, I keep a mask on me because, you know, I don't want to look at you if you're ugly, you know what I mean? Um, okay, but here's the thing. I really, okay, while you're saying that, I love the masks. I'm sorry, yeah. guys. I'm never going back to not wearing a mask. I love wearing my mask, putting on my hood. Don't talk to me. I'm not accessible. I'm busy. Like, I'm running an errand. I don't know. I, the, the fact that no man looked at me an entire year and said, will you give me a smile like that? Mwah, beautiful. Anyway. It's nice. You know, uh, it was interesting. I was talking to Erica about one of our friends who has a child who is two between two and three years old right now. And so they have never lived in a world where people didn't wear masks. And so they don't like people. The, the child doesn't like people that don't wear masks only because they are used to seeing the mask. So it's just a foreign concept, which I thought was really interesting. And I think it's probably affecting a lot more people than we realize at this point. So, um, but yeah, the masks are good. I, you know, flying on planes, you still got to wear them. It's good to wear them in big public situations because, you know, people are gross. And we realize that big time that people don't wash their hands, that people are sneezing and stuff and coughing. So uh, protect yourself, protect your family, protect your neck, uh, you know, get out there. And, uh, you know, at the same time, it's nice to be outside with friends. We got meetups starting to come back. I'm seeing some diabetes meetups. They're starting to get planned. We're going to have in-person events. Children with diabetes this summer is going to be in-person. Uh, Friends for Life uh, conference is going to be back in person. So I know there's a lot of kids and parents of kids with diabetes who are really excited about that. So, hey, we're, we're moving onward and upward here. Uh, I've been really busy because the agency recreation has hired a ton of new people. We've got 22 staff members full time at this point. So that's really exciting. And, um, you know, for me, I've never run a company with that many people in it. That's my own. And so I'm learning every day as well, just all the sort of new challenges and uh, new responsibilities. And that is just what I'm dealing with. 
So lots of lots of stuff going on. I'm I'm proud of you. You hired so many people. I know that there's even some small diabetes connections there too. So that's really cool. That's dope. I'm proud of you. Yeah, um, we got two two T1D employees besides me now, which we've never had before. So that's pretty exciting. So it's nice to just like see. <laughs> yeah, we you know we're talking about insurance and stuff, and like you know like hey, here's the plans that I'm on, and here's uh yeah you know they we both of uh both of the ladies that work with us uh wear their robot parts and wear their CGMs, and so it's just nice to have somebody. And I also told them we have like a secret closet with a bunch of candy in it here because one of our clients sent us a bunch of stuff, and I was like, look, if you ever have a little blood sugar, this closet in here has got all the hookups, like whatever you need candy wise. That's, that's the spot. Welcome to Rob's stash. Here's where he um, keeps it. It's like a vault in there. It's like all, all this crazy stuff. Like there's Easter, like the Reese's Easter eggs, man, those, those are so good. Um, so, I think that um, in the corporate world with a lot of people, I know for myself that with COVID in America kind of coming to a close, things are amping up for us at work. A lot of us are being sent back to offices and it's become kind of a stressful and convoluted type of environment here in the good old USA working place. But I mean, I'm, I hope all of you guys are doing okay. I say that because I know I've been struggling myself. It's been really tough to keep up. Um, we're going to make it guys like this, you know, just hold on. Um, it's part of this growing change is this growing pain of going through a pandemic and what do we do after and how do we deal with all the consequences of that pandemic while still keeping ourselves safe. And I think that super interesting to see how Rob and his company are kind of taking things and how mine and my workplace is doing things. And it's just watching all of these company cultures really change in real time. It's super interesting. And yeah, we're on a hybrid schedule right now. We, we just increased it again. We're now 50-50. So we spend half the week in the office and half the week out, which has worked pretty well so far. And I think for me, I like, I didn't realize, like, I kind of like, I'm very compartmentalized in my life and I've worked on that a lot in the last year and a half, but coming to work, you know, I leave the house, I get in the car, 10 minutes later, I'm at the office. And then, you know, I leave work 10 minutes later, I'm back at the house and I don't, it makes it easier for me to like keep those separate because they had really, I think that was one of the sources of my burnout. I was just really chronically stressed out from working all the time. So now uh, no, getting to- experience that a little bit on the other side has, has been positive. So if you haven't figured it out and you're out there, I, I'm with you and I haven't figured it out yet either, but we're getting there. So Absolutely. we're doing this podcast a little bit differently than we have in the past. We want to keep things fresher and more up to date on a ongoing basis. So what you're about to hear is an interview that we did uh, with Noor Al-Ramahi a few weeks ago. It's really good. And Noor explained some really complex topics about Palestine, which I think uh, for people who aren't as versed in that, I think we'll get a lot out of, as well as uh, talking about diabetes uh, moving from UAE as a child, United Arab Emirates, here to the United States and the differences between that. Uh, so a really, really impactful interview. And I was just uh, kind of mastering the recording and uh, adjusting the levels before we got on this call. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So that's coming up next. Uh, we also have a, a slot for advertisers because we have advertisers on the pod again. So type zero is going to be Type Zero Health is back with their sponsorship and they are the official fitness partner of Diabetics Doing Things. So uh, a T1D owned company, we had John Jensen on the podcast, the founder, and he and I just got to know each other over the years. Uh, we've been in touch for you know two, two and a half years or so. And man, I use the product. And as you guys know, I'm trying to stay, um, you know, just trying to stay in shape, trying to get in that Hollywood leading man, like movie star shape. And I'm close, no, you know, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, probably not eating good enough, but I've started that as well. Uh, so really, really uh, excited to have type zero on there and I'll be uh, 
you know, supplementing the podcast ads as well with some content on my Instagram. So keep it locked there. Uh, really uh, some cool giveaways coming up. We've got good goodwill and sponsorships and scholarships. So uh, keep an eye out for that as well. We're going to be continuing to talk about what we're doing other than cool things and good vibes and fun times. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of people in this country uh, and also internationally who need our help. And we're going to keep them in mind and make sure that we're not um, you know, only catering to one style of people. So um, with that, I kind of, it's really about all, all it is. Um, I, you know, all I've got for, for this sort of intro, Eritrea, you got anything? Um, I just want to say that I'm really excited for you guys to hear Nir's episode. She's such a close friend of mine. We talk all the time and she's the person who got me to open up about my uh, pregnancy loss and who really helped me open up about talking about diabetes. So I find her so I just respect her so much and I so value her sharing so much on this episode. We definitely want to put a trigger warning here. This is kind of where I think we should drop it before you guys listen any further. If you have some kind of um, some triggers with mental illness or pregnancy loss, eating disorders, uh, medication and mental illness, or even IBS, maybe this episode is not for you. Um, it is, it is, it is full of a lot of information, but I think it would be very uh, impactful for you to listen and to learn from it. But if it's triggering, I completely understand. Yeah, and we have a formal yeah. trigger warning right before the episode. So um, if you cool. want to get through that, I've got all, all that stuff ready for you. Um, but yeah, otherwise, we'll talk to you guys next time we record. We're going to try to do these at least twice a month. So you're going to be hearing our live voices in between some of these other, uh, other interviews that are just pre-recorded. Um, so right now, let's hear a, a message from Type Zero, our sponsor, and then enjoy this episode with Noor al Ramahi. What's up, guys? I got a very important announcement for you today. Not only is this episode sponsored by Type Zero Health, but Type Zero is now our official fitness partner of Diabetics Doing Things. And that's exciting for me, because if you can hear, I'm actually mixing up some Type Zero NO Booster in my shaker cup right now, because I'm about to go work out like I normally do late in the day. And what I want to tell you first about Type Zero is that for people with diabetes, you can get the boost and the pump you need to crush your workout without having to worry about spiking your blood sugar, because Type Zero's NO Booster is clean. It's caffeine-free, it uses natural ingredients, no artificial flavors or colors, and it doesn't spike your blood sugar, but it gets you the pump you need. It also doesn't have caffeine, so I can have it later in the day, like I am right now. It's about 5.30. I've just gotten through my workday, and I'm about to go hit the gym. I use it when I play basketball, when I go on a run, when I hit the weight room, which I've been doing a lot lately. And I've been using it to help me shift into workout mode while I'm at home. I get that shaker cup going, mix it up. I'm using the cherry limeade flavor right now. You got to check it out. Type0health.com for more information. If you use Type0health.com, use code Rob Howe. That's my name, Rob Howe. No spaces at checkout and you can get 20% off. Type0 is a T1D owned business and you know how I love T1D owned businesses. Check out episode 132 for my interview with the founder of Type0, John Jensen. You can hear his story there. Also, check out Type Zero's Clean Nitric Oxide Supplement. I've been taking it for a few weeks now, and it has really powered my recovery. Again, no caffeine, just beetroot, pine bark, arginine, and citrulline, which are natural ingredients. It helps me recover, which is a big part of how I implement my training these days. I've got to be able to recover. I take on a lot of mental, non-physical strain, and then with my workout schedule, it's hard for me to recover and bounce back. And this has really helped me. I even left a review on Amazon with a photo of my whoop strap where it shows month over month how my recovery increased after I introduced the clean nitric oxide supplement. So check that out. Again, typezerohealth.com, 
the official fitness partner of Diabetics Doing Things, and use code Rob Howe for 20% off at checkout. All right, back to the episode. What's happening, podheads, fans of the pod? Boy, do we have something for you today. We're back, we're back. Uh, Tara, Trey, and Rob, back at it again. Back at it. Um, we have a very special guest today. My good, good, sweet friend, uh, Nora Aramaki. I love her so much. We've been friends for a good amount of time, and she is an amazing human being. She is uh, truly an activist, uh, a voice for marginalized folks, not just uh, of her own people, but also uh, for people here in America. And it was really a great conversation with her. And, and uh, I, you know, I think that one thing we need to do before we get into the conversation is it, there are some trigger warnings. This is some serious, heavy content coming through. We're, uh, there's mentions of diabulimia. There's mentions of post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. There's mentions of postpartum depression. There's mentions of depression and mental health. Uh, we also talk about the Israeli and Palestine conflict. And we go really in, in depth about that for about an hour, the second hour of this interview. So, um, if any of those things cause trigger problems for you, maybe this isn't the episode for you to listen to. However, I would say um, it's a very balanced and a very deep and well thought out discussion uh, from someone who has a great deal of knowledge and a great deal of time spent. Uh, not only is it close to her heart personally, but also professionally. And I would encourage you to to listen to it. Also, she makes references to quite a few uh, authors and books and publications. We will link those in the show notes so that you have a place to go look uh, for those if you want more information. So uh, besides all that, this is a great interview about diabetes, also about being a diabetes mom, a T1D mom, and our good friend of the pod, Kenny Rodenheiser, uh, who has not been on the podcast yet, but uh, is my my good buddy uh, from uh, Children with Diabetes, and he's an amazing CDC. Yes, he gets a big shout out early on. So um, definitely, I, we, I want to hear your feedback on this video or on this podcast. I want to uh, really continue to dig into highlighting the struggles of people with diabetes everywhere, but those are also so closely tied into humanitarian crises. A few years ago, we had Elizabeth Pfister from T1 International on the pod talking about what people in Syria were going through at the time trying to get insulin. It's a very similar situation right now uh, in Palestine. So it's really, really important for us to continue to shine a light on these marginalized groups because there are people like us with diabetes among them everywhere. So uh, please enjoy this interview. And remember, if, you're, uh, if you have any issues or any problems uh, hearing content that we mentioned earlier, uh, please do yourself a favor and proceed with caution. Viewer discretion is advised. Otherwise, enjoy the interview. Is that, is that new? I've never heard that before, but hey, we, welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. Our very special guest today, Noor Al-Hermahi. Welcome to the show, Noor. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So excited to share what I have for you guys. And we've got a lot. <laughs> I know. And, and I think, uh, you know, for, for those who follow us on Instagram, you took over the pot or took over on doing things day a few weeks ago. And I was just watching your recap uh, the other day. And I just remember like, wow, like Nor like covers almost every spectrum of like the diabetics doing things guests, like <laughs> diabetes advocacy, organization, work with organizations, uh, pregnancy, uh, coming to America, like all, being diagnosed somewhere else, coming to America and having to learn to deal with that as well. So really excited to dig into your story and, uh, and, and talk about how we ended up here today. 
Thanks. Yeah, it hasn't always been a smooth sailing. Um, there's definitely been a lot of ups and downs, uh, but it got me to where I am right now. And uh, not to sound very cocky or anything, but I'm pretty proud of the person that I've come to be. I'm definitely not perfect, very far from it, but this is me. What a powerful place to operate from, right? Yeah. And I, in full disclosure, that might be my antidepressants talking as well, but... <laughs> Yeah, give me those SSRIs, baby. Give me, that, give me that serotonin straight to the brain. Uh, so why don't we start with diagnosis? Because you were not diagnosed here in the United States. I know you're living in uh, the Bay Area in California now, but talk about day one with diabetes and what that was like and what you remember. And, um, you know, let's let's bring that back to the present day. Sounds good. So funny story. My mom doesn't remember my diagnosis date. Nobody in my family knows. Um for my birthday last year, I asked my mom to dig up my old medical records to find out when I was diagnosed, but the hospital I was diagnosed in shut down. So anyways, we don't know the exact same day, but I was probably around seven years old. Um, and I was always a, a heavy kid and I started losing a lot of weight and I started wetting my bed and I was very potty trained at that point, you know, and my uncle, my dad's uncle is a doctor. So my dad was like talking to him and he's like, we don't know what's going on. Like she's been wetting her bed a lot. And he clearly kind of figured, put one and one together, but he wanted to be sure. So he's like, just bring her over to my clinic. Um, first thing tomorrow and we'll get her tested. And we found out then and there that um, I had type one diabetes. And I still remember my dad being in the office with his uncle. Um, he was breaking the news to him and I was sitting outside the door I don't, I don't remember feeling very distraught over the whole situation, even though I didn't really know what was going on. But when I look back at it now, there is that feeling that still sits with me that something is not right, you know? Um, but the way my, my mom handled it was just so powerful. She's such a strong woman. She, she was very sympathetic and acknowledged that it was, going to be hard. And it's like a lot has, has to change, especially when back when I was diagnosed, you know, we had a strict schedule and we had to the log book and the NPH and R and all that stuff. So it wasn't as flexible as life is right now. Um, So she was, uh, but at the same time, she was very, um, very strong in the fact that you're going to, I'm going to be okay. You know, we're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. We've got this. And that, that put me at ease till now. It's something that I carry with me where it's like, okay, today has been a shitty diabetes day. You know, I'm going to sit and I'm going to cry over it for five minutes. I'm going to have a little pity party, but you know, I'm going to pick up, pick myself up because this is the hand that I was dealt and I need to, I need to live life because that's, I'm the only one who's able to do that. You know, nobody's going to live life for me. I make it what it is. Um, so that's pretty much like where I started in terms of like my, um, diagnosis. And at the time we really didn't have an endocrine, pediatric endocrinologist in Abu Dhabi. Um, so I was seen by a pediatrician, just a general pediatrician, but he was actually pretty, I love his approach and, but it like diabetes was just a whole different beast back then, you know, just the, I still remember like even summer vacations, my mom would have to wake me up early to take my shot on time. And like, I would have breakfast in bed, half asleep, then go back to sleep, you know? 
Um, yeah, it's it's so funny to remember like when you had to eat lunch, you know, like that was like just an essential part of your day. And even, you know, early on, I, I never took R and MPH. I was, well, my parents had insurance and I was prescribed Lantus and uh, Humalog, I think, or no, maybe Novolog right away. And so that was my experience. But then going back I, a few years ago, I, I did 30 days on uh, oh, yeah. R and NPH just to spread awareness about what the truth about Walmart insulin was. And God, it was mm-hmm. terrible. It was just every day, like <laughs> I was making these vlogs and like every day my bags like under my eyes grew. <laughs> I was like turning gray. It was terrible. So yeah, I mean, yeah. It, one thing though, I, I wanted to go back and ask you, you know, you talked about your mom having like this very firm foundation of like, we're going to be okay. Where is that just her? Is that just her spirit? Where did that come from? Yeah, she's, um, she's a very, so she's, she's also endured a lot of hardship, uh, hardship growing up. Um, and she has like a family history of health issues as well. She lost her mom when she was really young to breast cancer. So from a very young age, she also learned how to be her own advocate and, um, just power through life and, you know, find the silver lining in everything. And I, she's also uh, has a very strong belief system. So she falls back a lot on that. Um, so yeah, it's, she's, she's just a spectacular woman. Like it's one of these things where I've always known how amazing she was, but it wasn't until I became a mom and I realized everything she's done for me, like even like for our family and Uh, specifically for me like and I will straight out be the first one to admit that I was that child I was the troubled child and that's like regardless of my diabetes and even with my diabetes I know like I've I've worked in um in healthcare so we don't use um non-compliant anymore but I was I, I was I was that child you know I I put them through hell and back um so I'm very appreciative of um, everything they've done for me. And I know like they, in, in Abu Dhabi, we didn't have all the resources that were available in the U S at the time, even, even though in the U S it's, it wasn't what it, like, we didn't have the technology we have now. Um, but still like every year, my parents would fly me to Jocelyn to do like a full medical checkup and, and like, they'd pay out of pocket and it's like, okay, what's the latest insulin? What are, and I remember the first time I got like the micro, the, the micro syringes, I was super excited about those. Um, so so yeah, that was pretty much like my childhood with diabetes. Like, although we had, I had a couple of uh, people that I knew in school that had type one diabetes, it was actually pretty, a pretty taboo topic to talk about um, in our culture. It was kind of like uh, your damaged goods. And a lot of people just didn't want to talk about it. You know, it was just something that they wanted to avoid. Um and, and let's let's dig let's yeah. dig into that a little bit because we've had other guests from UAE and the Middle East and from India and other in places mm-hmm. outside of the US who have said very similar things where you know that we I think even in, in the United States we sort of take for granted how in the culture diabetes is as a conversation starter and how you know I think as peop as a people we're weirdly to say like more accepting of differences uh, than other cultures in, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases. So talk a little bit about the stigma with diabetes, uh, you know, around and the conversations that you had with those other people with diabetes, you know, before you came to the U S. Yeah. So in terms of conversation that I had with people um, back home was non-existent pretty much. 
um, even, even though a lot of them um, were my classmates or like people that I interacted with very frequently, um, it wasn't something that came up, you know, and, um, and my, like towards the end of um, my time in Abu Dhabi, well, I, I am from the UAE, I'm a UAE citizen, so it's always, it's always home to me, but we moved to, to the States um, almost 11 years ago, but towards the, the last couple of years is kind of when I um, started changing the way I perceived diabetes and I, the way I perceived myself. And that, that happened kind of when I started um, being part of the diabetes community. You know, I realized there's nothing wrong with me. There's no shame in, in having diabetes Oops. Um, and having diabetes. And I met all these amazing people. And it's like, you can be anything or anybody you want to be and still be quote unquote normal, you know? So, uh, um, but at the beginning it was, it was just very hard because first of all, like when people do find out you have diabetes, it's, it's always like very pitiful, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Hope you get well soon. And I'm like, mm, that's not how it works, but okay. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and then you automatically, even though, even though not always they, they say it out loud, but it, it is said. Um, they say it with their time. face. They say it with their face. And especially as a, as a female, you know, you can see all these thoughts going in their head. It's like, oh my God, poor, poor her. She's not going to be able to get married. She's not going to have kids. Like who's going to want um, to marry her and take on that burden? You know, it's like you see all that on their faces. And um, luckily I haven't, had people say it straight to me um, a lot. <laughs> I've had a little, like a, a couple of encounters that I can count on my hands. Um, but it, yeah, it is something that that does get to you. And my dad, um, although I love him to death, and he's like my favorite person on earth, but he um, he does care about culture and how people perceive um, him and his family. So as a way, he viewed it as a way of protecting me from society. He chose to um, hide, like hide my diabetes or help me hide it to protect me from the way people perceive me. I don't know if that, that, that's making sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he just didn't want me, like he saw me for who I am and he didn't want people to not be able to see that because all they're seeing is my diabetes. I think that's a dad thing. I think it's, uh, whether it's diabetes or something different, I remember, and I'll, I know Eritrea told me not to talk forever on this pod because we have a lot <laughs> to cover, but, um, one of the first times, uh, the first summer I had diabetes, I went on a cruise with my family and, uh, part of the cruise was like a snorkeling excursion that my dad and I were going to do. And we signed up for it. And on the form, of course, is do you have the following medical conditions like heart problems, diabetes? And so, of course, I was like, well, I'm going to be honest about this. And I checked the diabetes box and they they were, were waiting to get on the boat or whatever. And they're like, hey, we looked over your paperwork. We can't let you do this, even though we think you'll be fine. Like our insurance won't cover it if something goes wrong. And that was the first time I had ever been told that I couldn't do something um, because of my diabetes. And it was very different than what the doctors told me a diagnosis was I could do whatever I wanted. And, uh, I remember my dad kind of like, we, we, we took the the feedback and we left and we found that we we're going to do something else. And he put my arm, his arm around me. He's like, Hey, maybe next time we don't tell them. And maybe next time we just keep it between us and we work it out. And, and I think in that way, 
there are scenarios where it can help you to keep your diabetes under wraps a little bit. And I know that's very, uh, as my pump goes off, that's very contradictory to what we say on the pod quite a bit, mm-hmm. but uh, I think sometimes you got to protect yourself. Yeah. Like I, I, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I just wanted to say that to Nora's point, I think that in the culture it's, it might be a dad thing, but it isn't also Arab culture thing to be modest and keep things to yourself. Like I remember Growing up, if we would go out to eat and I was going to take my insulin, my baba would be like, Eretra, go to the bathroom. Do this private. Yeah. Keep to, yeah. keep to yourself. Because I think that, to Noor's point, information is power in the Arab community. And so people can always use things against you. And what will people say? So um, it is an, a form of protection. So both of you guys are right. But I also think it's very cultural because there is that immediate judgment of diabetes. Um, something Nora was saying earlier, like when you meet people and they're like, oh, you have diabetes and they feel so bad immediately. There's also the opposite. Um, I've had people, Arab women walk up to me and be like, oh, you have diabetes, so young. Don't worry, my cousin has diabetes. She had three kids, totally fine. And it's like, I wasn't worried, but now I am. So it's like, it's like yeah. a cultural thing, you know? I think it's a lot of th- to do with women as well. People feel very, and I think women do this to other women too. They feel very comfortable giving unsolicited feedback and advice about things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think <laughs> I skate on that. Dudes just don't do that to each other. We don't have that type of relationship. We just can't think. We're too stupid. We don't think that far ahead. You guys don't care. No. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So um, shifting the culture, right? And and shifting mm-hmm. from where we're being growing up in UAE and when you moved here to the US. Like before we actually, before like we shift to moving to the US, I just want to say something which I feel is like very worth mentioning is that pressure from culture and society. And it wasn't only diabetes also played into like the body image and weight aspect of it. So I started and like Eritrea said, it, it like my dad was like, oh, like, why don't you take your shots in the bathroom or like, you know, like not in plain sight. And I got to a point where, you know what, I'm, I'm like, I'm such a social butterfly and I can't, like I have major FOMO, so I can't leave the table and miss out on conversation. So I started skipping my, my shots, you know, I just didn't want to deal with it. And part of it was also being a teenager. I didn't want to be different. And then it's also, I didn't want to leave this space. And, um, and that's kind of when I started realizing that I was losing weight and I just kept doing it and it developed into an eating disorder um, which I struggled really badly with for um, 10 plus years like I was I had a cardiac arrest uh, once I was in a coma for um, six days um, in and out of the hospital it strained my relationship with my parents life was just it was miserable you know it's like every night I would go to sleep not knowing if I was going to wake up next day like it was that bad but the way that it, the, the eating disorder, which is a mental health issue. It just takes control over your brain. It's like you lose control. You know, a lot of people are like, well, you, you knew you were hurting yourself. Why did you, did you stop doing it? I'm like, it's not as easy as that, you know? And even though like I've been in recovery for almost 11 years now, it's, it's not always a linear, um, journey. You know, there are still days where I wake up with like really crappy, body image days and I have to talk myself out of those days you know like I, I I never think about going back to my old ways because I know that I deserve better and my kids deserve better but it, it still 
messes with your head. Um, so it wasn't until I found the diabetes community and it was through the children, uh, children with diabetes friends for life conference. And the first time I went, I was actually still living in the UAE. Um, my, my doctor had suggested the, to my parents that I attend it. And I literally did not want to go. Like I, I locked myself in the room and like, my mom was like, well, the only way you're getting your cell phone back is if you attend the session. Mom's and I was a know. teenager. I know. And I was a teenager away from my friends. Like that phone was the only thing connecting me to my, my comfort zone. So I attended and that's literally when things change. And it was actually like the moment I still remember the exact same moment. I'm sure I I think Rob, you know, him, uh, Kenny Rodenheiser. I do. So we were on a, we we were on a Disney bus going to one of the parks and, um, he was checking his blood sugar on his forearm. I don't know if you remember like the freestyle, there was like an option to do on your forearm. So I was like, why, like, why are you doing it on your forearm? And he was like, um, just as an extra safety precaution, you know, if I ever have eyesight issues that um, my fingertips are not calloused and I can read Braille. And like, yeah, I see you're enjoying that. Like it was just like a mind blown moment because Again, this is probably not very PC, but Kenny to me was like the poster child of what a diabetes patient should look like, you know, and here he is worried about diabetes complication. And at that point, like my A1C was floating 13 plus and not a care in the world. So I'm like, okay, you know what, maybe I should take things more seriously. And that was literally like the, the turning point. And then again, having that community, it wasn't just like, oh, he said that I needed to do that, but it was also happened to be that I was in a space, like a safe space for people with diabetes, you know, Mm. where I felt like I can come out and talk about like my struggles of kind of being a closeted diabetes, if you may, you know, in my culture and owning it and being like, you know what? Yes, I do have diabetes, but look at what I have done with my life with diabetes. And that's when kind of, I wanted to reclaim my narrative, you know, and um, share my story the way that I live it, not the way people perceive my life with diabetes to be. And that's kind of what I've been doing with my life since, you know, it's like, yes, diabetes always there in the background. And um, I do take very good care of my diabetes, but it's not the only thing in my life. Um, so. And I knew this was going to be a good interview. Diabetes uh, struggles are so multifaceted. I think it's always so fascinating when young women talk about going through things like diabulimia because there is, and we were talking about this in our positive on glucose group the other day, like Nora and I and a bunch of the girls, there's almost no way to make it unscathed without having a, a weird relationship with food and your body when you're grow like with, when you grow, grew up like this, it's, it's really interesting. And I think that for all of us, there is that moment, the one that Nora's talking about with Kenny, where she like the light bulb turned on and it was like, I have to change the way I'm doing things to move forward. Um, so it's always so inspiring, inspiring when I get to hear how, what somebody else's moment was for them. I, I do want to say too, like how impactful it is to just have a friend with diabetes or like be able be in a space where you can ask somebody about why they're testing their blood sugar on their arm. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. tell you my Kenny Rodenhauser story. Uh, the first time I met him, uh, we were in Chicago uh, at a at an event for Zaris uh, Zaris Phar- Pharmaceutical for uh, for Glucagon, and we were like walking from one restaurant to another. Uh, and 
I don't know. We had been like, it, it was one of those, um, kind of like happy hour things. There was like finger food. And so you never know exactly how many carbs the bowl is for. And, you know, one of those, you know, back, back to your mind being blown. I'm like, Oh, you know, I guess I'll just do my best here. And so I had clearly like oh, given myself too much insulin, didn't eat enough carbs and we were walking. And so I was absorbing insulin and I was like, ah, oh, man, I'm like, I ran out of my low snacks. Like I only had like a small amount with me. And I was like, Hey, does anybody have any low snacks? And it was like 12 people with diabetes with me. And Kenny was like, I do. And he like grabbed some gummies. And I was like, wow, everybody should have like, that was the first moment I met him. And yeah, Kenny is, like you said, seemingly the poster child for living with diabetes as a like compliant patient. And also he's yeah. a great CDC. Yes. He is. Yeah. Shout out Kenny. We love you. Friend of the pod. End of the pod. <laughs> I, I've never met him. I would love to, I guess. Um, you will. One of these oh days. my God. Life is not complete without meeting Kenny. Okay, I'm putting it on my list. <laughs> How old were you when that happened? Or around like what age were you when you think you had that moment? Was it teenage mm. I Yeah, it, it definitely a teenager. I think I, I would say like 15, I think. 15. And no, then 14. six years later, that's when you got married, when you were like 21. Yeah. And then you moved to the U.S. Yes. Got it. Okay. So let uh, before we move on, I, I think, you know, Eritrea, you touched on diabolemia and it needs to be talked about because people with diabetes of all kinds have complicated relationships with food. I think that mm -hmm. they're, like you said, Nora, they're very intertwined with body image, with fat phobia, with the, with diet culture, with the way that we speak to ourselves and our bodies and what culture values in terms of the way that we look. Um, there's a, a, I'll plug my, my friend, Rosie, uh, who I know through Dallas comedy house, uh, is a, uh, influencer, a, a plus size influencer. And she has been calling out all these times in the early two thousands where, and she's got gone viral on TikTok a couple of times of like, I saw it. Yeah, the Jessica, that Jessica, Jessica Simpson, Simpson bill has been burned into my mind. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nora, the, the no. Jessica Simpson at a cookout leopard print belt. She wasn't even fat. Never mind. Right, but, they, anyway. but all the tabloids were going on about how large she was and how fat, how she had gotten fat. And, uh, we were at, like, Rosie was talking about, and, and for me, for some reason, like that, like time in the tabloids is like, I don't know there was no Twitter or something. So we were like tabloids were all that we kept up with. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that the, in the culture, she was saying like, cause she as a, as a large woman was, uh, shaming Jessica Simpson for being fat. She was like, Oh, I, I looked at her and I was like, she looks disgusting. And because that's how I felt about, uh, the, uh, about that culture. Like I had just been brainwashed that I wasn't good enough. And the way that I looked wasn't right. And so, uh, it's, you know, we're going to talk about media later on as well, but it shapes so much of, of how we view the world and, um, how we view ourselves, how we view ourselves, man. Preach yeah. That. Even on a, like a subconscious level, there's this really uh, great documentary. It's called killing us slowly. I think they're like different versions, like different parts. I think it was killing us slowly for the one that I saw, um, the latest version. And it talks about the subliminal messages in the media. And even though you're like, Oh, I, like, I don't care about that stuff. It really does change how your brain is wired, you know? And like being exposed to that from mainstream media and advertisement and all that stuff. And then add on to that, like a double whammy, how it's ingrained in like in the Arab culture, even more than it is. Like, I feel like in the Western media, it is more sexualization of the woman's body in terms of weight, whether she's skinny or not. But a lot of it, I feel in the Arab world is um, also your worth and um, 
and also like your ability to be loved. It, like you have no idea the amount of times, like when I graduated college, like people would come up to me and be like, oh, you have such a pretty face. Like, like you need to lose weight so you can find a husband. I'm like, how is that related to me finding a husband? You know, it's like, am I not lovable the way I am? You know, I'm still going to be the same person. Um, and like comments like that, they, they, they stick with you, you know, and it messes with your head, whether you like to let them or not. Um, so it's taken a lot of, uh, a lot of therapy, a lot of years, um, to kind of get over it. And still there are times where I find myself like the first thing it's like, oh yeah, she's pretty, but she could like, if she loses a few pounds, she'd be prettier. And I have to hold myself back and be like, no, maybe she's happy this way. Maybe she's healthier this way. You know, it's like, I've been through that where at my skinniest, people were literally congratulating me being like, oh, we're so proud of you. You know, you've taken care of your health. You've reclaimed your health. You blah, blah, blah. Like I go on. And that, that even makes it worse. Like it digs a deeper hole for myself. That's such a, that's such a like slippery slope because you're, well, the things that you're doing to yourself sometimes in like in the case of diabolemia, externally, people think that you're doing good. They think that they value you more or, or whatever the case is, but they don't see what's contributing to the changes. Exactly. It's like they, they, they respect your discipline and all that. Like, this is like my number one rule, like with my kids right now with, with, with people. And I think everybody that knows me knows this, that I will not let anybody comment on their body, whether it's negatively, positively, your body is not a conversation for you to have, you know, as like even their pediatrician. Yes. If you have any health concerns, you can talk to me, but not in the presence of my kids. That is not something I want on their radar, you know? Um, but yeah, going back to our topic. No, was, no, no. Just- I love this. I love this. This is such an important thing. I actually, Rob knows, uh, I, so I started fitness journey last year and I feel like this, this thinking of your body being valuable outside of weight loss is so important. Um, Mm -hmm. so like I set my goal to be something random, like be able to jump over a fence, which I know sounds really crazy, but that's still my goal. And I'm going to be able to do it because the point is like, your body is amazing because it is doing amazing things for you every day. Like, and I I think this kind of, kind of maybe even comes back to our culture nor Cause like, it's like in the Quran, like even blinking your eye, like God thought about that for you. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like for me, or just try, try to start thinking like the body is an amazing thing, regardless of its size. It is not worth a value. It's not money. Like it's just a miracle. And we just have to be grateful for it because otherwise we're sitting here putting ourselves at, I do not deserve love. I do not deserve a career. I do not deserve success because I am X, Y, Z. And that's just toxic poison, you know? So yeah. Like I like what you said about how it is in our religion, but also like I, I've, I've had the same religion and been exposed to the same religion my whole life, but still, you know, it took me a lot of therapy and work to get to the point where I am now and realizing that, you know what, my body has shown up for me every single day of my life, even on the worst days where I thought I wasn't going to make it, even when I was in a coma, even, you know, all these things, my body showed up for me and kept me alive and gave me the opportunity to be where I am today. And every day of my life right now, I spend it giving back to my body, even if it's small things. Like, like you said, like I'm, I won't call myself an athlete because I think that's hey, a if you have a body, you're an athlete. I was about to say you're an <laughs> exactly, athlete. Nora. Exactly. No, I was going to say, because that's a loaded uh, like statement. Like I just don't like what the modern day definition for it is, but 
and I don't do it for weight loss. It's just, I love the way it makes me feel, you know, mentally and physically strong and capable of carrying myself and just honoring the bot, my body, but it's given me everything, you know, um, even with a not fully functioning pancreas, you know, it's still doing a pretty badass job. So, yeah, I, there's this weird entrepreneur guy that like came in and guest spoke in one of my college classes. And, uh, he owned like a bunch of businesses in Colorado Springs or something. And he had like a book and the book was called the box you've got. And the whole premise was basically like, everybody has a box. There's different stuff in everybody's box. Can you make the most out of what, what of the box you got? And, you know, I I think there's a viral tweet or, or, you know, a sort of meme going around about people are talking about their quarantine 15 or their quarantine 20 and not loving Mm -hmm. themselves as much after the quarantine. And it's like, well, your body showed up for you every day, helped you survive a global pandemic where so many people passed away and so many people got terribly sick. And the first thing that you can do is instead of celebrate that is to judge it for adapting mm-hmm. a little bit to the new normal. Um, yeah. You know, yes, yesterday, this is, I mean, I'm going to talk about this probably for way too long, but I went and did mm-hmm. a, ba- a basketball tryout yesterday for the, and I hadn't played basketball in like 15 months. And frankly, it was just for my mental health. I just needed to go out and play against some real humans. and. I needed that for myself and I had not prepared. Uh, I have been working out. I've been working out a lot and I feel really good. And you know what? I showed up and my body responded. It was there and I got through and I wasn't even like, I was like, man, you can't really tell the difference between what I'm doing and what these, uh, these other guys, maybe they've been prepared better for me, but, or than I have, but, and sure I could have been way better prepared. I could have absolutely been way more ready, but, you know, it was cool to be like, you know what? My body showed up for me today. All this prep that I've been doing and uh, hard, boring work that, you know, I'd leave, get done with a workout. I'd be like, why am I doing this? I don't even know. And just to be able to, I don't know, go out there and and use my body and move around and ask it to do stuff and it respond was, was really fun. So yeah, I don't, you know, I don't care if you're a, we've had some pretty amazing athletes on this pod. We've had some normal folks. And I think that if you have a body, you're an athlete. And if you, you can celebrate what your body does for you, even just if it's, you know, keeping you alive through the night with steady blood sugars, man, what a, what a celebration that should be. I agree. So I want to shift over because I know we, uh, your, I want to, I want to hear your perspective on, on motherhood with diabetes. And we've talked about it uh, a lot on this podcast previously. And Eritrea and I have talked about it a little bit as well, but, um, it's certainly one of the first questions that outsiders ask women with diabetes all the time is they, there is stigma and there is misinformation associated with being a T1D sugar mama. Shout out to the T1D sugar mama's accounts. Uh, they are, they are awesome, awesome folks over there, Brandy and her team. So, Talk a little bit about your your pregnancy journey if you're if you're comfortable sharing that with us. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I was lucky in the sense that my sister-in-law also has type 1 diabetes. So in terms of like dealing with my in-laws and that, I didn't have to and, and she had she had a she had a daughter at the time when I came into the family. So I didn't have any I don't know what's the right word. Um, you got to you know, skip that conversation, I guess. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like I didn't have to deal with that. So she kind of already paved the, the way for me. 
Um, but I also have PCOS. I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was um, 15 years old. Uh, I guess, I, I don't know, it's weird. I don't know if it's like the, a woman's intuition or it's us as people with, di with diabetes, we're just so in tune with our body that we know our bodies so well. I like from the get go, I had a very strong feeling that I won't be able to um, get pregnant in the traditional way. Um, and that's something that I, I had disclosed to my husband, even though like there was no any medical um, proof for them. And he was like, okay, you know what? It is what it is. I like, there's no point making it a big deal right now. That's not going to change the way I feel about you. And it's not going to change things. Like when we get to that point, we'll, we'll jump that bridge when we have to get to it. Like, okay. So we got married and, um, we were married for, um, a, a year and a bit before we kind of decided that we want to start trying for a baby. And at that point, because I did have that, that feeling that I wouldn't be able to get pregnant, even though I don't want, I didn't want a baby like immediately. Um, I don't know that might not have, doesn't sound like the smartest thing because it could have happened next day, but I don't know. I just had a really strong gut feeling. And um, so we're like, you know what, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, whatever. Um, it, it didn't. So we were trying for another year, um, just naturally trying and that didn't work. And then we went to a fertility clinic and, um, it was very interesting because when we first started, they're like, oh, like, yeah, you have PCOS and it's kind of, um, not, not, they're like, it's not that bad. You know, it's like you have a moderate case of PCOS. It should be fine. We'll just increase your metformin dose and it should work itself out. Great. Went home, increased my metformin dose, couple of months, nothing happened. Went back again. They're like, oh, that's so weird. Your body's not responding. Let's do, um, uh, let's do uh, Clomid, like the oral um, hormones and to see how your body responds. I'm like, okay. Went on Clomid. My body wasn't responding either the way that they thought that it was, it was going to respond. And oh my God, those pills made me psychotic. Like, no joke. Like now I reflect back and I ask my husband, like, how did you not leave me? He's like, if we did one more round, that, we probably wouldn't have been here right now. No, like it, it, it was, it was bad. Poor um, I, I remember once, like I just went to the bathroom and he had used the bathroom and didn't change the toilet uh, paper roll. Yeah. It, it was a big mistake, but you know, not the end of the world. I went out and I started yelling and screaming at him. I threw a picture frame at him and then got really worked up. So went to the garage. I don't know why we had a three bedroom house at that time, but I chose to go cry in the garage. So, you know, when you're like really upset and worked out, you, you get hot. So I got, I, I started like, I getting, getting really hot. And then I went inside and continued yelling and screaming at him and calling him like a stingy <laughs> words because he didn't put AC in the garage. Like, no, no, it, there was like no common sense. Like it was just uh, insane. So yeah, we did, um, we did four rounds of Clomid, um, two of them with IUI and still my body wasn't responding. So at that point they're like, okay, let's do IVF because they're like, well, we can keep going. You have up to six, uh, six tries, but my Allah was your like, husband no. said, no, yeah, no, no. He's like, we'll Tell us we're finished. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, we're, we're ready for IVF. And, um, 
And keep in mind that in order for you to start trying to get pregnant, you need to have really tight control. So my A1C, like my healthcare provider for me, again, this is something you need to discuss with your health provider. For me, they wanted my A1C. um, So when I first started, they said they wanted it below 6.5, which is fine. But then when things took longer, it kind of, I started getting like burned out really early and it wasn't even you know, the pregnancy part yet. So my doctor was like, you know what, it's okay if you kind of chill out a bit. So, but I was still very focused on doing that, that I actually like kept dropping my A1C. Like I was at 6.0, when I uh, started IVF and um, the IVF clinic, that's something that, and like, we didn't check with them before if they had an A1C requirement. And apparently they did, but we didn't find out until after we had signed the papers and paid the money. And their requirement was 5.8. And mine was six at that time. And I still remember the nurse calling me and she was like, well, you have uncontrolled diabetes and we cannot proceed. This is, this is a high risk for the baby. And like, keep in mind, I was already dealing with all the like infertility struggles and someone telling me that my like a1c of six wasn't good like i just had a- you got lucky she got lucky you weren't on clomid at that point or else she, she might got lucky right. you was on the right. phone <laughs> i just started bawling but anyways they refused to start the cycle like to do the ivf on that cycle so we waited and even though like my my endocrinologist was like that's ludicrous you know it's like i cleared you for ivf everything so next time they did the blood test it was 5.9 um and they're like, okay, you know what? We can proceed on a couple of conditions. You need to see a perinatologist um, to talk to you about all the risks given your uncontrolled diabetes. Um, so I had to sit in an appointment for a whole hour, someone telling me all the possible things that could go wrong um, in my pregnancy, which is like super traumatic. Um, I had to get a clearance letter from my endocrinologist and a high-risk uh, OB. And I had to um, do... A, C, a cardiac specialist and a dentist and um, eye specialist. So anyways, I did all that. And the doctors were like, you know, given the way that your body has been responding to, to the hormones and meds, um, we don't think that there's a very good chance of you getting pregnant um, if we put one egg, one embryo, you know, it's like, I think it's better to do two embryos. And even with the two embryos, you know, there's like a very low chance that you're even going to get pregnant. Like I, I, at the time they quoted me like 3% chance of me getting pregnant. Um, and I explicitly told them, I do not want twins. <laughs> you know, I was like, I do not want twins. <laughs> so anyways, fast forward, we did IVF, put two embryos in and um, my blood test came positive. Great news. My um, pregnancy, the HCG levels, my pregnancy hormone levels were tripling every day. They're supposed to double. And um, the, I'm like, what does that mean? The nurse is like, well, we're not quite sure yet. Like we can't, we, we can't um, tell for sure without an ultrasound, but it's usually an indication of a twin pregnancy. Again, didn't think anything of it. I'm like, you know, I was lucky enough to get pregnant with one, like no way I can be carrying twins. So we went for the um, ultrasound and I had no morning sickness at the time. Um, blood sugars were like perfectly in range. Um, and then he was like, yep, there's two. I'm like, two what? He's like, two embryos. I'm like, what do you mean? Again, like I'm a science geek, so I know what this means, but my ba- brain just wasn't processing it. He's like, there's twins. I got so nauseous. 
And like I sang, I was like, I think morning sickness is kicking in. And I turn around and I see him like bent over the trash can and he's like dry heaving and like trying to, wants to throw up. And I'm like, what is going on? And he just wouldn't say anything like the whole ride home. Like we finished the appointment, we got home. Like, can you say anything? Like just swear, yell, say anything. It's like, how the hell am I going to pay for college? I'm like, really? That's your concern? I have diabetes and I'm carrying twins and that's your concern. But it was, it was actually, um, um, I'm hesitant to say this, but pretty smooth pregnancy, all things considered. Um, it, now in retrospect, I think it's easier for me to say that, but in the, in the going through it, um, I had very, very extremely tight control. Like even the doctors were um, incre- like decreasing my doses because they were so worried that my blood sugar levels were like really like I'm walking a fine line um and I developed preeclampsia towards uh the end of it so they had to induce me um earlier it, for twins it was fine it was 37 weeks um and I was able to deliver vaginal birth I opted to um to just stay on my pump for the beginning of labor. But then I asked to be switched to an IV trip because um, I'm not sure if you know this, but I, the IV insulin is in and out of your system within three minutes. It's processed and it's out of your body in three minutes. And I had like extreme, extreme insulin resistance towards the end. Like I was one-to-one plus four. Mm. Um, and I was just giving, you know, a couple of units here, a couple of units there, just, you know, just like water. Um, so I, I wanted to know that if my blood sugar was to go high, um, during labor, I would have a quick fix with that, but I also had to set ground rules. Um, and luckily at that point, I really learned how to advocate for myself. And I told them, I'm like, if, um, if my blood sugar goes above hundred and you do not correct it, I, I am going to give myself insulin. And I kept my infusion site on, it was disconnected, but I had my infusion set on ready to bolus myself if they refused to um, adjust. Luckily, I didn't have to do that. Um, and yeah, the, the boys were the boys. So I have uh, twin boys. They were born with actually really good blood sugar levels. So no complications there. One had a, um, a slight breathing problem, but had nothing to do with diabetes. Um, and they're not like, it feels like pregnancy and diabetes, like the least of my concerns with them <laughs> running all over the place. Yeah. But, now, now they just drive you crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's awesome. It's actually been amazing how diabetes in so many ways has, um, has really prepared me for motherhood or parenthood, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of like preparations and just even, even in terms of, uh, being their advocate, you know, I, I know like a lot of parents, it, t- it takes them a while to, um, to figure out what, what or how to show up for, for their kids. You know, a lot of people say, Oh, it's uh, instinctual, but I really don't think it is, you know, in a lot of ways. And um, also there's like a lot of pediatricians appointments and you're like, and we've already navigated that healthcare space. So we know how to deal with doctors. We know how to deal with insurances, all that stuff. Um, Even like the small things where, you know, we we have our bag to carry all our diabetes stuff, you know, it's like, (laughs) what's one more? And it's actually, it was more convenient. I had the baby bag, I'd throw everything in there. Um, and it just, you know, it's like always prepared for the kind of prepared for the worst case scenario, I think really kind of shifted into, um, 
also like my parenting styles, you know, it's like, okay, I have two kids, but let's pack six snacks just in case. Um, so it, it's re- it really did. Um, it, it really did help me. And also, I don't know if it's just me personally, or a lot of people in the diabetes world also feel that where I, I'm not squeamish. And like, when it comes to like, Sorry, this might be like TMI, but like puke. Stop. And I don't agree. Stop. No, no. Really? I don't agree. Stop. Okay, I'm the most squeamish human on the planet. Wow. I literally, shut up, Rob. I literally like, if something like is gross on TV, I'll gag. Like I'll gag and I'll almost throw up. Or like if something, okay, so. uh, something smells or if a person smells, oh my God, stuck foot a lot. If somebody smells bad, can't do it. Okay, so it, it must be just me. But yeah, yes. like I one of my kids like busted his head, head open. I'm like, oh, okay, blood, no big deal. You know, let's cover it up, apply pressure and deal with it later. My husband's like freaking out. Deal with it later. I'm like, I'm like medical stuff doesn't freak me out. So I don't know, maybe it's not a diabetes thing, but yeah, um, so it did help me in terms of that. And then when the kids were about uh, two years old, I did have a miscarriage. It wasn't a planned pregnancy. Um, and that's when they kind of, and it, it was funny because I, I didn't want to be pregnant. I like after I really had a very complicated recovery from um, and postpartum, like I really suffered really, really extremely bad um, postpartum depression. Um, and it was something that actually I don't think I ever um, I, we dropped the postpartum part, but the depression kind of stuck with me. Um, and I, I've had episodes of depression before, but it kind of came and went with the circumstances. And um, I do have a very strong family history of mental health um, issues. So um, the depression kind of never went away. And, um, but when, like, I didn't want, I didn't want to have kids because I was just struggling with my issues and then struggling with being a mom, you know, I, I couldn't enjoy the process because of everything that I was going through. Um, and, uh, and also like all that, they drill it into your head that you need to have perfect blood sugar, perfect blood sugar. And I've been trying to achieve perfect blood sugar for like three, three or four years. It was hard to let go of that once I was done, you know, and trying to juggle, um, my, my depression and having twins and just life in general while keeping perfect blood sugar was just miserable. So I was, I just didn't want more kids. Uh, so when I found out I was pregnant, I'll just have it really quickly. You know, I found out I was pregnant. I went to the doctor to do a blood test to, um, to check. They, they did a couple, so they did, uh, I, I did a home pregnancy test and then I went to the clinic and they did another like home and clinic pregnancy test Two showed up positive and one showed up negative and he was like mm, well that's confusing so let's do a blood test I'm like okay so we went we did a, I did a blood test and um I believe that was a Friday so the results were um yeah the clinic was closed so yeah it was a Friday the clinic was closed on a Saturday or no it was a Saturday the clinic was closed on a Sunday yeah sorry um and that Sunday um I had the miscarriage at home and part of me was relieved because I didn't want that pregnancy. So it, I was just like, it's fine. No big deal. You know, like I didn't, I wasn't even excited about it, whatever. It wasn't until like a couple of weeks later where I realized I, I was so angry at my body. I was just so frustrated and so angry and so upset. It's like, I've tried for years to get pregnant and 
you couldn't like my body just wouldn't get pregnant. And then when I didn't want to get pregnant, I accidentally get pregnant. And then you, I can't, I couldn't keep the baby, you know, it's like, I was just so angry. It's like, why can't you do anything right? You know, it's like, you're so broken in so many ways, you know? And it was, it was just kind of, and I I do realize that it, it was a lot of my depression talking at that point. And I was, that felt kind of like rock bottom to me. I just felt like everything it's just like my whole life started flashing in front of me. It's like, okay, it's like the diabulimia, eating disorder, coma, um, fertility treatments, like everything. It's like, why can't you do anything right? I was just so angry at my body. Um, so, so I had to process those emotions. And it took me a while before I, 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 I saw medical help for my depression um, to process all this. And I remember like my first appointment when I just unpack everything and you you guys are just getting the diabetes part of it you're not getting you know just the, the other life and she just looked at me she's like wow how are you still here you know she was like I don't think you realize how much trauma you've endured in your life and I'm like well now that I said it this way and you're to paraphrase it I'm like yeah but still I feel like I feel like I don't have the right to complain because I do acknowledge my privileges, you know, I, I do acknowledge my, whether it's my light skin privilege, whether it's my, um, having a financially stable family, you know, all these things, access to healthcare, uh, not living in a war-torn country, you know, I do acknowledge, and I feel like I have no right to complain about these things. Um, so that's another thing that I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with, um, currently and working on in therapy is, kind of realize acknowledging my privileges and also realizing that other people's struggles, which I perceive as more worthy, don't undermine mine. So retweet. Big yeah. Facts. Uh, yeah. Hopefully we don't have the same therapist because they would have a lot to deal with between the two of us. <laughs> three. Uh, yeah. A lot of three of us really too. Right. So um, I also, okay. So I want to shift you, you brought up, um, you know, being thankful, being grateful for, you know, not living in a war-torn country, acknowledging your privilege, um, and also giving yourself space for living a tough existence and having a hard time. I think that's for me, uh, I I have a hard time admitting that too. Like why, why should I have it? Why should I have depression? Uh, It doesn't add up, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time, you don't want to, uh, skip over the people who are really suffering uh, and yeah. the places in the world where there are injustices and terrible things happening to people who you know or or look like you or you have uh, you know have something in common with and have shared an experience with. So I I know you are you are you are from UAE but you are Palestinian and yeah. I, I'd like for you to kind of walk us through not just what's been going on over the past three and a half weeks or so, but also just historically um, what that's like for a Palestinian person to exist in today's world and, you know, talk about the injustices that are going on uh, back home. Yeah. um, First of all, I'm going to like start off by saying um, speaking up for Palestinian rights does not um, does not mean that it, you're anti-Semitic or standing against um, the Jewish population. They are not opposing uh, beliefs um, or missions. They actually go hand in hand. 
Um, nobody's free until all of us are free. Uh, so in saying that, so my personal story is um, my, my grandfather, well, I'm going to start with my grandfather because that's, that's as far as um, information as I have, but my every generation before that has lived on the land of Palestine. And um, my great grandfather um, was, uh, was pretty well off and we live, he was the leader of the tribe in our village um, back then. And he had a lot of land and um, property and all that stuff. Uh, when, so at the time the Palestine was under the British mandate, it was colonized by the British army. Um, and when, after uh, World War I, um, the Jewish population needed a space, a safe space to call their home um, that protects them from the outside world after the horrendous um, uh, things that happened to them during the Holocaust. So the British people were like, hey, here's the land, you can have it, you know. Um, and in doing so, they, cl they claim that this land um, the, this land is for them and ha they had, there was no people on it, um, which from personal experience, um, we know is not true. You know, it's like my whole family lived there and there are a lot of also documents, historical documents that prove that there were people on the land. So anyways, uh, the only way that they were going to get this, um, that this only Jewish state is to erase the people that were there. And that's when the ethnic cleansing started in 1948. In 1948, um, our village, uh, which is called Mzera, now there's a, a huge Israeli settlement on top of it, uh, was seized and they were forci forcibly displaced. Uh, my dad's uh, family, so my, my grandfather and my great-grandfather moved to Jerusalem at the time. Um, and in Jerusalem, they were made refugees in Jerusalem. We actually have the UNRWA uh, refugee card. Um, I have a photo of it. My dad sent it to me a couple of days ago. Um, and, in, and in Jerusalem, because of, again, privilege, because my grandfather, um, because of his wealth and his connections, um, my grandfather was able to get a job in Qatar um, to provide a life and like money um, for his family. So they don't live in, they, so they don't have to live in refugee camps. Um, and then he came back, he got married to my grandmother and, um, and then the night and had kids. They had five kids at the time. And then in 1967 war happened and my grandmother, my grandfather was still working um, outside Palestine and my grandmother had to uh, leave Palestine um, with her five kids with literally uh, rockets and bombs dropping on them. And, um, oh, I posted, I thought I posted on the you did. Um, takeover. No, it was on my personal page, the story. Um, my grandmother, like till now, oh, did I mention it about the leggings? I know, but you can tell oh. us, please tell us. So my like a couple of years ago, I've noticed like my grandmother's always wearing, well, they're not technically leggings. They're like pants underwear, but I don't think they have them in the Western Long culture. Long <laughs> okay. Yeah, pretty much. Um, she always wears them no matter what she's wearing, no matter what she's wearing. So I asked her once, I'm like, why do you always wear these? You know, it's like it's clearly not for decency because you're wearing a long dress, you know, and it's not transparent. And she's like, like, you can see, you know, this glassy look in her eyes and like sadness. And she was like, well, 
when we had to flee like flee uh, Jerusalem with the um, w during the war, there were uh, we didn't have time to to get prepared, so we just left with the kids like in the middle of the night. And at some point, she was like, there are missiles and rockets and all that shooting going on. So they had to like crawl on the ground and on rubble or, you know, rubble and uh, bushes and all that stuff. And her knees were just like all scrap, like cut up and scraped and everything. So till now, she feels like her subconscious brain is telling her that she needs to be prepared for everything. You know, it's like, and I'm like, but trauma. It is trauma. Yeah, it's, it's trauma. And, and that's the sad thing. Like w w there was this, um, there's this uh, Palestinian psychologist who said, we actually don't have po post-traumatic stress disorder because we don't have the post. We're right. the, like the post never left. We're still living that drama, that trauma. And it's become generational trauma. We've never had the, the space or the time to even process that trauma. Even the people who had left, like I've never been to Palestine. I've, I've, I, like up until last year, I did not have the right to return. You know, I had no rights of being there, even though I'm Palestinian, you know, it's like my whole family is Palestinian. So anyways, um, so that's how they left, they left Quds, which is Jerusalem, and they settled, uh, they moved to a couple of places before they ended up uh, settling in um, the UAE. And my grandfather got the UAE passport because he was a lawyer and he helped establish the, um, the country. So they gave him the passport and they made him the ambassador of the UAE in Jordan. So that's why they ended up in Jordan. Um, so for me as a Palestinian, like as an Emirati with Palestinian origins, it, it's very hard because, and I, I never, I never struggled with this topic growing up in the UAE because over there, everybody was on the same page in terms of what hap what's happening, you know? It's like, nobody, I, I didn't have to explain it to anybody. I didn't have to um, defend myself or justify my existence to anybody. And it wasn't until I came here where I really struggled with that. And I think that's actually also was one of the main forces behind my depression is I was tired of fighting. And it was, it's very interesting because when, during like the Black Lives Matter movement, when you would hear Black people saying, we are tired, or you'd hear them telling us, don't, you know, as I like, don't tell us how we're supposed to feel or how we're supposed to express our frustration or our anger. It, it resonated with me, you know, but at the same time, I wasn't allowed to say that because I knew if I said anything, I would be labeled anti-Semitic. And I knew that the way that the media portrayed the whole oppression and apartheid and ethnic cleansing was very whitewashed you know and the whole western world even well not the whole like in in their defense there are some people who have been um privy to this uh, uh the, to the reality from the beginning but still like the majority um viewed us as the problem you know and it's like I am, I am the victim here for like lack of better words. You know, it's like, we are being oppressed. We are being subjected to, to police uh, brutality, you know, to military, the like militarization of the police, to 
stealing our land, stealing our house. And this is like not even going into details of what happened during the war of 1948. You know, there are historians, Israeli historians who have wrote books on this topic about like, there's a whole book called ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And it goes into details about everything, the horrendous stuff. And it's interesting because the Palestinian people, the older generation did not, don't talk about this. There's like so much trauma. And I think part of it is also, Um, they view it as shame or failure to have protected their land in a way. And they also, they're super proud that they don't want to play victim. They don't want to be victimized. You know, it's like, yes, throughout this all, we're still resilient. We're still fighting. We're still going through it. Um, We don't want your pity party kind of thing. Well, and I think too, like you said, being tired and like, you know, reaching a certain point where you just avoid those types of things just because you don't have the energy anymore to continue to try to fight for that. Yeah, there you have that on one hand. And then you also have on the other hand where you know that speaking up, you're going to pay a price for that, you know, um, being like we've already seen like, yes, there's been a, a huge shift in the narrative where we've seen a lot of people speak up for Palestinians, but we've also seen how um, they tried to hijack um, the whole the whole narrative and make it seem that this is anti-Semitic. You know, we're it's it gaslighting. Not, it's it, literally it gaslighting. 83 years. That so when you guys were like, we're tired, when you say tired as a black person, as an Arab person, it's we're tired of being told that nothing's happening. You're you how 83 years of gaslighting, homie? Like, because I mean the whole conflict, or not even conflict, war, ethnic cleansing has been happening now for 80 something years. And it's like also this thought process of this has been happening forever and it's always going to happen. And it's like rooted in the, in religious history when really it actually has nothing to do with religion at all. And it's all about land, space, people, and that's it. But you know what, even at this point, it is, it's just about basic human rights. You know, it's like literally like people are just asking for their basic human rights, you know, it's like, but we don't even have that. We don't have, whether we're talking about, whether we're talking about Palestinian on the land of Palestine or Palestinians outside the land of Palestine, we don't have basic rights. Like even in the US, people talk about freedom of speech, freedom to protest. We don't even have that right. The BDS movement is literally like a a protest. This is your right to protest, to spend your money where you wish to be. And it's already like, by the in the u.s it is labeled a terrorist organization it's banned in the u.s we can't so i was thinking about doing this i was like i should put stickers on the food that says like they support israel and so i started googling it and was like oh no if i do this i'm going to jail it's super illegal here i had no idea crazy illegal like go to the penitentiary forever the anger and the frustration is really about like the double standards and like the impunity when it comes to this matter like um there was, uh, God, I forgot his name, blanking out his name. So he's actually a Holocaust survivor and he was like a mental health specialist. Um, I believe he's a psychologist. And he, he said, he's like, you can clearly see the double standards. He's like, why is it when in Hong Kong, the protesters throwing rocks at, uh, at the police in the media, in the Western media, that's portrayed as heroism. But when children, children are throwing rocks at, at like, uh, one of like the strongest militaries in the world on uh, tanks, you know, uh, they're viewed as terrorists. Like why, why is there that double standards? And you know what? I don't like, 
Yeah, I think I think I just got really into the conversation and I can talk about this like for hours and hours because it is a 73 year long occupation. It's complicated and goes way beyond that. But I think to just kind of keep things relevant at this point, I think a lot of what a lot of people don't realize or don't want to realize is this is not and this is not a both sides situation because it's not an equal fight. Um, it is one side who's the oppressor and the other side just resisting the oppression. You know, we are just fighting for our basic human rights. And in doing so, a lot of people, innocent people have suffered and a diabetes community um, has suffered, suffered a lot. You know, we and right now we have like two different situations where you have Gaza which is basically the world's largest open air prison, you know, it's like, yes, it's controlled by um, Palestinians, but. Just, that, just for those listeners, that's the West Bank. Yes. Gaza. Yeah. Gaza, yeah. The strip. Yeah. Yeah. Gaza. The strip. Gaza strip. Yeah. It's um, it's even though it's Palestinian territory, it's, it's still controlled by Israel. There, there's been a, uh, I think it's 15 years now, 15 year blockade where blockade like land, air and sea. Nothing is allowed to go in. Nothing is allowed to go out without permits and permits are almost impossible to get. Um, I was listening um, to an audio book today. It's called uh, Every, um, Except for Palestine by Mark uh, uh, Hill Lamont. I love him. And he was he was talking about a story of this lady who uh, is from Gaza. She got married to um to a guy in Jerusalem and they moved there and she applied for a permit like a couple of times over the span of like three months to go visit her family. She kept getting denied and then they, she, they gave her permission. Um, and then when she went to Gaza, it took her, uh, she was applying for two years and they kept denying her, v- her, uh, her permit to leave, to go back home. And then they issued her husband a permit and not her and now they've like they've been separated for four years. They're not allowing her permission to leave. Now, um, okay, so this this specific scenario is not related to diabetes, but let's for a second, just for a second, um, say that this lady did have diabetes. Okay, as diabetics, we prepare and we over prepare. We go on a trip, we double our insulin. You're going for a trip that's supposedly a month or two, and you end there for six years with no with no end in sight. How are you supposed to, to prepare for that in a diabetes sense, in a place where there's a blockade, where there's very extremely minimal access to healthcare? Like even, we know, we know friends in Gaza who are in med school, so they're very into the uh, healthcare scene. They told us, because I had extra pumps and I was like, I'm willing to, help like if there's a way for us to find like if if there's if we can find a way for us to get this to you I would gladly get this to you and I collected a lot of supplies so they had enough supplies to easily last them a year first of all there was no way to get it to, to them secondly he told us he's like we have in all of Gaza the Gaza population is two million people in a very tiny overpopulated can like um, a strip of land there are 2 million people, um, only three, only three people in all, all of Gaza have insulin pumps. None of them are on their insulin pumps because they have no access to supplies. That's how bad the situation is here. And I know sometimes I get frustrated that, you know what, I don't know. 
Dexcom took more than four days to to send me my my sensor or my my uh, a pump site failed or whatever. Or but there's again, like a that's a privilege. car line at Walgreens, you know, it's like how exactly. And then you say that, okay, what about the check? Let's let's move out of Gaza, okay? Let's go to um, occupied Jerusalem. Um, the checkpoints. We, they're claiming that it's not an apartheid. Well, what do you say when there are checkpoints only for Palestinians and roads only for Jewish Israeli people to roam as they please without being stopped? What if I want to go? And a lot of these checkpoints were built intentionally to inconvenience people. You know, it's like they're checkpoints and there is the uh, apartheid wall. There's like a whole wall that's like more than double the size of the Berlin Wall. That is just like, they just decide, okay, let's put it here. A lot of families have been separated from each other. Like imagine you and your brother, I don't know if you have a brother, but decide to have a house in front of each other, you know, to raise your kids together. And then in comes a wall. And now it takes you like five plus hours with the checkpoints and everything to just get to your brother's house. But anyways, think that you're trying to get to a pharmacy. How, how are you, how are you going to get to a pharmacy with the checkpoints? A lot of like, even like from a, from a medical, uh, you know, so many people have died at these checkpoints. Oh, yeah. So most I actually, of them? there's like this whole problem with freedom of movement. Like it's an entire and I, I want to say a specific case that was like very important to like everything that's happening right now. But rest in peace to Omar Yagashi, a baby who was supposed to have a surgery on Israeli land and that was denied going onto Israeli land because they were Palestinian. So this was a baby, like an infant who had scheduled a surgery to survive. His family got like held up at a bunch of different checkpoints on June 18th. And they like their child literally died in their arms. Like this is, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. When people are like, we need to see like both sides. Like what is the other side to that? Make me understand. Make me understand why an infant needs to be lost to a cause that like this. And like, even like, um, like in terms of diabetes. Um, so UNRWA, uh, what's it called? Sorry. UNRWA is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees. And a lot of the um, residents in Gaza are actually refugees that were displaced from um, what we now know as Israel. Um, so they, as of 2018, they said that they have 1,050 uh, T1Ds registered um, with them. Uh, keep in mind that that's not always accurate because first of all, that's only the refugee population. You also have the Gaza population that is not listed under UNRWA. Um, and um, they, they only have, uh, they don't have any public um, diabetes uh, specialists physicians. So they have the private clinics for these physicians, but you're talking about um, a city that has 55% unemployment rate. So the poverty in the city is through the roof people and Israel controls their water. They control their electricity. They control everything. So these people have absolutely no resources in terms of just everyday living um living needs. So how do you expect them to have access to diabetes care? We know that diabetes care is very expensive. Now, UNRWA provides for the refugees insulin 
syringes and just like medical checkups um, because of uh, aid cuts from the U.S. Um, they had to uh, they don't have the budget that they used to. So they stopped providing uh, strips. Imagine managing your diabetes without strips. Um, so that's that's like another it's just like one crisis after the other after the other. And um, even like in West Bank and East Jerusalem, um, 15.3% of the population has diabetes, whereas the whole world has 6%. And um, they think they think that 4.4 out of these, um, out of the 15.3% have type one, but based like on um, resources on the ground, doctors, physician, all that, they actually think that it's higher, it could be like between 18 and 21%. And like we it's just the small things as well. So these are like the big things, but like the small things as the person with diabetic that we take for granted. It's like, imagine living in a, in a house that has an average of three to four hours of electricity every day. What's going to happen to your insulin? You know, like we freak out when we go to the beach for, for an hour or two. Imagine like living with no, no power. It's just like all these things. And like, even when the bombing was happening and I kept thinking, I'm like, everything is closed. Like literally everything is closed. There is the, the, there's like a food crisis happening because again, Israel controls what they think is enough food coming in or what, what is enough and what types of food are going in and going out. And I'm like, okay, what happens if we are, I'm stuck in my house hiding from these bombs and my blood sugar goes low and I don't have access to gummy bears, which Israel might think that, you know what, Gaza doesn't need gummy bears. It's not an essential. Like things like that, it's, it's gone beyond a political stance. And I know when I took the takeover, when I did the takeover, a lot of people were very upset that a diabetes page was talking about politics. But at this point, it's not about politics. It's about human rights. And you know what? Politics and uh, politics has become a healthcare issue, you know, it's like even today I was um, the human rights organization had a live on Instagram and they were talking about the environmental, um, the envir uh, environmental, uh, what's the word, um, the factors that affect health and specifically like maternal health. And I kept thinking, again, I went, kept going back to the situation of Gaza and the situation in Palestine. And you know what, even, even the, whole, the whole country, let's include Israel in the, in the situation too. These bombs that keep dropping, this, the toxic gas, the um, phosphorite gas, all that, this, we don't know the extent of damage that this does in relationship to our diabetes. And we have friends in Gaza who said like, it, it like wrecks havoc on their blood sugars. Oh well, yeah. Like, just that. like, you know, I think early on, uh, we, we were hearing stories about, you know, people couldn't sleep because the, the bombs were going yeah. off at night, all night by design, like uh, as a war tactic to drive you insane. And we know what lack of sleep does to our blood sugar. We know what dehydration does to our blood sugar. Mm -hmm. We know what stress does to stress. our blood sugar. So, you know, and multiply that times, you know, the worst stress that any of us here in the U.S. have ever had to endure by a million. And mm -hmm. of course you have those types of outcomes. Yeah. And it was like, I'm not in, I, I'm not in Palestine. I'm in the U.S. 
safety is not a concern um, in that sense. Um, and my blood sugars were still through the roof because of this stress and the anger and the frustration. And it, it, we go back to talking about, I felt guilty that I, or I felt like I didn't have the right to complain about that because what do I have to complain about? You know, bombs are not dropping on my head, you know, it's like, and then at the same time, I was just so exhausted because I knew I had to take care of my mental health and I had to take care of my physical health as well. But I couldn't, I couldn't walk away because I felt like that was my responsibility to be the voice for the voiceless or, and speak to the injustices happening. And by the way, I just want to say that it's, Eritrea, you know me. So this is not that, oh, she's passionate about Palestine because she's Palestinian. I'm an intersectional uh, activist. I believe in speaking up for everybody oppressed, you know, whether it was during the BLM movement, LBGQ, um, a, a community, uh, the Asian population, um, Syrian, Muslims. Yep. anybody that needs a voice, I was there, you know, I, I've always been there, the immigrants. Um, but right now, the Palestinian people need us. And, you know, for the longest time, uh, I, I wasn't able to speak up because I was, I, I don't know, I knew that I would be gaslighted. And because I felt like it's just going to be me against the world, you know, at this point, at that point. Um, Let me ask you this, because, and it might just be because of my friendship and you know business relationship with Eritrea that I'm more exposed to Palestinian Palestinian people but I also have a close friend and, and business partner associate that uh, is pal his, his family is, is Palestinian and you know so I'm more because I have diversified those friendships I'm more exposed to these things and so I do have a personal connection to it at least just one person removed and at the same time people are upset that I am talking about it and um, on the other hand, I've never, I don't think that I've seen as much support globally. It's very similar to black lives matter where there was like that specific day where there were a million, millions of protesters globally protesting the, the murder of, of black people by police in the United States. And, mm -hmm. and I'm seeing a little, like not, a, not as large, but a, a similar start. Uh, to you know uh, that movement, and I was talking to Eritrea about it earlier. How much of that is just because the democratization of access on phones and being able to show what's really happening? Because what's really clear to me, as like a marketing guy and communications guy, is the gaslighting that that Eritrea mentioned earlier. Is that there's a really pro-Israel, anti-Palestine narrative that's fed to the U.S. media. And for me in particular, like a white guy growing up in, uh, you know, evangelical South Dallas, Texas, I remember, and I was, I've told Eritrea this before, I remember an announcement going out at my school when Yasser Arafat died uh, in like celebration of an enemy, you know, you know, that type of narrative. And that's how people who grew up where I grew up, we're, that entire relationship is framed. So it is a deep-seated misinformation battle. Over yeah, decades. so... Yeah, there's definitely been a shift in the narrative. And I feel like... Um, I think also the Black Lives Matter um, movement that we've experienced in the past um, 
couple of years, two, three years, in a way, um, prepped people for how to deal with this. But you still have a lot of people, like you said, that have already been brainwashed um, and are scared. They're scared to speak up for Palestinian rights, thinking that that's anti-Semitic and that's going to harm the Jewish population. What And this is where they're trying, like the Israeli government and Israeli propaganda is trying to shift um, the focus and shift the narrative into making it seem that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are um, interwined. Uh, you, we've seen a lot of people who are either Jewish Israelis or just Jewish um, from different countries speak up for the Palestinian people against what's happening um, uh, from on behalf, like a, what's happening um, from the Israeli government. And it was actually interesting because um, I've, like, I've, I've had this, I've, I've struggled with this situation for the past, like, 11 years, if not longer. And uh, two weeks ago, we were at a protest and there were these two women carrying um, signs. One said, um, one said something along, it basically said something along the lines of another Jew in support of a free Palestine. And the other one said, um, not in my name. Um, so I walked up to them and I was like, thank you. Like, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, um, and then one of them asked if she could hug me. We're both fully vaccinated. We have masks. I did ask you was vaccinated. Um, and I, I said, yes. And we hugged and out of nowhere, I just started bawling. Like I just, I had all this bottled up emotions that I just let it go. And she like, she clearly saw me like crying and upset and she just kept like whispering she's like I am so sorry I am so sorry you're going through this like and, and I told her I'm like you know what and I'm sorry you guys had to go through what you went through too it was not okay then and it's not okay now you know and that's that's, I what, think, get, that's what gets me though isn't it exactly the same it is. It is. And this is why. So there's this, I mean, well, and, seeing, well and, and uh, before, before I want to clarify that before, before I let you continue, like the, the beginnings of Nazi Germany and the stories that we hear about the Holocaust and World War II, it starts with the state claiming property and moving the people into ghettos. And to me, I think that's what's most shocking about what's happening over the past 75 years and learning about the true history of it, because we did not cover this in my world history class in ninth grade in high school. Um, mm -hmm. But is how similar they are and how quickly like they turned heel and, and did the same thing to another people group that they that, that happened to Jews and like the murder of, of six million Jews. It was not that long ago. And I, it was awful and horrific, uh, but it doesn't two wrongs don't make a right. And I think exactly like, that's what I've been saying. Like the I had two wrongs did not make right. Like I that's that's just what I keep saying. And it's really frustrating when um, the the whole boat like both sides or um, the Hamas excuse gets thrown in. Like just to put it out there, I do not agree with what Hamas does. But at the same time, you need to understand that first of all, this. Um, this ethnic cleansing uh, has started has started in 1947. Okay, the war happened in 1948, but it started 
1947. Hamas wasn't established until 1987. So, um, and then what happened in these latest um, events, like, I don't know what to call them, but it's like, it just keeps everything, just like everything explodes and then it calms down for a while. And then, so in the, in the past couple of weeks, it, it had not like every yesterday we were with a friend who was completely oblivious to what was happening. And she was like, wait, but didn't Hamas throw rockets? I'm like, yeah, that's where you came in the middle of the conversation. You know, there was land that's being stolen for years and years and um, Israeli settlers walking around with weapons backed by the, the military when we don't even have access to things like water, healthcare, um, freedom to move, just walk in the streets. You know, we can't live in our, our own homes without it being um, stolen by illegal Israeli settlers. You know, and it's like, and I'm not, I'm not personally using the word illegal. That's interna by international law and condemned by United Nations and Human Rights Watch. Um, and and what do you expect when people are being oppressed? You know. Well, and like I think I, I think that's where, you know. I think Hamas is is weaponized by the media and certainly yeah. they're, you know, um, because it's easy to point at like a group and say, these people are bad. And, but then you, like you said, they weren't established until 1987 and I can't claim to be an, an expert on Hamas, but what it strikes to me is that in, when you, there's all those old memes that I feel like a lot of the guys I went to high school used to share when they were trying to like show that they were manly. They'd be like, if you're caged up, you turn into a lion, you know, and you turn, you know, I don't know, like, and I, and I feel like that that like environment, when you're sequestered and your rights are taken away and you have to become a person that, you know, by any means necessary to get your freedom and, and, and represent your people, that you do things that a person who, like us in the U.S., we've never had to take up arms in defense of our home uh, and, you know, or have to do things in the name of that. And I think that it's that's why war is so complex. But at the same time, Hamas is not an army. And are not funded by a government. So I, again, like when we, when we talk about why we're having these conversations, whether it's black lives matter, uh, talking about police brutality, whether it's uh, Uyghur Muslims in China being, uh, you know, mm -hmm. taken away from their homes and put in concentration camps, whether it's Palestinians being, uh, forcibly removed from their homes and put into an open air prison and denied basic human rights. All of those are, like you said earlier, intersectionality, part of the same issue, which is, uh, you know, it's racism, it's human rights, it's treating people differently because of who they are and where they're from. Uh, and, you know, we talked about this before we started recording. I feel like, and it's kind of taken a lot for me to unpack this, like as a, as a, a white guy in America, colonialism and sort of the spirit of conquering was celebrated uh, in, mm -hmm. in my, in my life, in my culture. And like, that is, you know, you, you mentioned like, like real Christopher Columbus shit. Uh, you know, it's, it hasn't been that long since we used to sing songs about Christopher Columbus, you know, like, and you know, all, pilgrim. Yeah. And all those horrible <laughs> things that he did to the native Americans and um, you know, uh, people talking about stolen land and like, you know, everywhere we are, you know, everywhere my skin goes is stolen land from somebody who talk about there. it, talk about it, talk and, about it. And so, you know, I didn't do that. Uh, but I benefited from it. And, you know, people died who I'll never meet and I'll never know about because they've been whitewashed from history. And I think now that's where I go back to the democratization of media, where people like us can just create content that is, 
on the ground with our phone and tell and speak truth to power in, in ways that haven't been able to be done before. Yeah. It's like, it's like if, if, if the liberation of a group of people is uncomfortable or intimidating to you, uh, it's one of two things. One is you're benefiting from it Two, You probably need to sit with yourself a little bit longer and ask yourself why, you know, it's, um, and I, I have like major respect and seriously hats off for, all the Jewish and Israeli people who have spoken up um, against the Israeli government's um, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and um, brutality. Like, I know it takes a lot of guts, and I know it takes a lot of courage. Like, we've seen Bernie Sanders. He's, like, been, like, he's, he's been called self-hating Jew since the very beginning, you know, just because he's standing up for injustice. And it's, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a video circulating around by um, interview by Russell Peters. He interviewed a guy called uh, Gabor uh, Mate, and he actually spoke about like a couple of things that really stood out for me. It's first, he said, you don't have to support Hamas to support Palestinian rights. Being pro-Palestine does not mean you're anti-Jewish. And I feel like that needs to be screened from the top of every building. You know, it's like, and more so um, to people who are new to the to this whole topic, um, especially um, Americans and quote unquote liberal Americans, because in their fight to make sure that um, the Jewish people are given the respect and dignity that they deserve, which we all agree with, uh, me included. I think they're scared to um, talk about the Palestinian, um, the the uh, the Palestinian um, occupation, in fear that they're gonna oppress the Jewish um, community. Which again, it's not Palestinians versus Jewish. It's I don't think that's the fear, Noor. I don't think that's the fear. I think that's you being really nice. I think the fear is colonialism. I think that Americans are afraid to say that this is wrong because then it turns around to us also being wrong, being this country. Like it's real. It's really, really I think, it's, I think it's that's serving, too complicated for them. It, to no, 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 like it it's serving. Way. It's serving very apple doesn't fall far from tree. Like they are literally like part of that state being part of its existence is that our government funds its existence. So yeah, like, yeah. That, you're talking like, you're talking on like a government level. As a com- no, as, as an American community. Like I think that a lot of politicians or even commentators or even the way that questions are being asked on CNN and MSNBC, like it's very around the framework to be pro Israel because if you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it has anything to do with like falling the apple falling far from the tree. I think it has more to do with the Israeli lobbyists being super powerful, you know, and um, trying big to money. control the narrative and all that. Big money. Yeah, it's it's really about big money at this point. It's really and like if you look at if you look at the the um, the people who are like it wanting to fight for the government in Israel, majority of them don't care about religion you know it's it's not about religion but yet they try to make it about religion because they know that's the weak that that's the weakest link you know that's where they're gonna get it enrages the mob it gets it it does it's that that 
tried and true propaganda tactic that I would say the Republican Party in the United States is really good at. They do an awesome job of distracting from the real issue and hitting you with uh, really like some of the best PR people in our in our country work for lobbyist groups because that's their job is to control the narrative, to keep the money coming in, to keep the candidates in power. And, you know, when people during the presidential debates, when people were saying Joe Biden's one of his big weak points in the Democratic Party was his uh, was his stance on Israel. This is what they were talking about, because he and Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris, too, like she's the police big supporters. So, of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that they're. Um, you know, we, we're learning a lot. And again, like, I, I think you're right, Nora, like most people have no idea about how the, you know, our global allies and governments work together. And, mm-hmm. um, it's and like really also, good. also a lot, like this is, I don't think this is a very well-known fact, um, even amongst Palestinians, but actually Hamas was really, um, the doing of the Israeli government. So, and I knew that. um, they funded them. Yeah. They funded and the creation. Mate, uh, who's a Holocaust survivor, talked about this. And he, like, I will quote exactly what he said. He was like, it was an, Hamas is an Islamic organization encouraged by Israel as an as a counterweight to the secular PLO, which Israel didn't want to deal with. During the elections, they wanted the shock of everyone. But psychologically speaking, like people tend to more. No, that's my me saying I interpreted uh, psychologically speaking people tend to go for extremist leadership when they are hopeless and deprived of any possibility and basic human rights so um, it's not justifying I'm, I'm not justifying their actions in any way possible I'm just stating like matter of fact facts kind of thing and he also talks he also so this is a direct quote from him again a holocaust survival who said the disproportion of power and responsibility on oppression is so markedly on one side take the worst thing you can say about Hamas and multiply that by a thousand times and it still will not meet the Israeli repression killing and disposition of Palestinians and you know what's the sad thing in this whole situation is if I had said that or a Palestinian person had said that nobody they would have lost the battle right off the bat but acknowledging and saying that this is coming from a jewish person gives it that much weight and it's like we've seen all these people talk about how we need to elevate black voices you know allow them to share their story to speak up to um it's it's their story you know this is what they went through and we need to just sit back shut up and listen and that same that same rule doesn't apply to palestinians and and that's that's pretty frustrating and i've also experienced that firsthand when i talk about it from my perspective nobody like it doesn't carry that much weight but when i say oh this Jewish person said this, or um, this Israeli person says this, or this ex-IDF um, soldier said that, then suddenly everybody's like, oh, let's listen. Right. And that's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think even, I can't, I can't imagine what you guys are experiencing uh, from commentary from people, sh- you know, when you share content, because it's like, I, I've had people accuse me of sharing propaganda, one-sided things, and I think you're right. 
the Palestinian perspective is just so easily dismissed by by people as as completely one sided. Um, and then I see these people and the stuff that they share because I'm a big believer in like studying the the both sides just to see mm-hmm. how they communicate with each other. And I all I see is uh, erasure of culture. I see uh, gaslighting. I see uh, recrafting narrative. I see Hamas what, weaponizing Hamas as as like oh look at these bad Hamas people. Uh, so we're justified to do whatever we want to to Palestine because of this. And you know it, it reminds me you know a lot of you know, the, the, it, it's it's very top of mind for me because during COVID, I read this long article or like a, a, a sort of tweet storm from someone who was saying, the reason that COVID-19 is going to wreak havoc on the United States is because it's invisible and you can't point to a singular source to say, this is the enemy. Uh, and it was this this way of life that tra- that changed and we, and we weren't able to adapt before it really uh, hurt us. And, uh, and he contrasted that with 9-11 where he said, okay, well... Uh, the, the ta- uh, Al-Qaeda is the bad guy. We are going to go get Al-Qaeda. And everyone was united behind that one idea. Like, Al-Qaeda attacked us. We're going to go get Al-Qaeda. And the uh, Islamophobia that has spilled out from that, I think, has it really affected Arab Americans and also and Palestinians and it is deeply rooted also in, in why the media is portraying this in, in the West like they are. But at, at that time, I think like that's where that's how the media is using Hamas in in the U.S., is that they're saying, "Hey, Hamas is bad." Uh, so then, and they're launching rockets, and they don't—they redact all of the other information from the headlines that says, "Hey, this is in response to, uh, you know, the, the Sheikh Jarrah and, and all the other uh, events." But like you said, uh, most people, and I think like this is something that my, my dad used to tell me a lot, and it's kind of a really weird right-wing Republican idea. But you'll never go broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public, and that's what you said earlier about most people have no idea. They don't really care and they just take what they're fed uh, and they just keep on moving. And uh, I think that's what the movement and, you know, the, you know, what social media, the impact of social media is having where we can hear from Holocaust survivors and say, who are addressing this directly and, and people who, uh, you know, are, are not Palestinian and are, and are Jewish and they're saying, Hey, this is wrong. This is, and I think that's where, you know, what I was looking for early on was like some sort of source of, of information that could cut through the people who are very resistant to what's happening. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how we're going to get there, but like, even, I, I think it's just kind of really humanizing us where we were always viewed as, um, by the media as terrorists or um, the enemy, you know, as like, yeah, just like humanizing us. And even like from a diabetes um, point of view, we've seen so many um, diabetes advocates talk about access to insulin, but nobody said anything when it came to um, the Palestinian people. It's like, okay, we understand that you don't want to get into the political situation, but we're still humans. We still need insulin. We still need access to insulin. And even from just a legal standpoint from like international law, it says in international law, it mandates that occupying powers must ensure that that the right to health is upheld during the term of the occupation. So it is the Israeli government's responsibility to ensure that healthcare in, in specifically in our situation right now in diabetes, that insulin and access to healthcare is provided, which we clearly know is not. Yes, legally, maybe we can say that the people in Jerusalem 
um, have access to these, but when it, it when it comes like push comes to shove, when it's applied, they they're, they're, they're they make their lives miserable intentionally so they can willingly leave um, Palestine. You know, and they're subjected to uh, humiliation, hours at checkpoints, um, horrible treatment at hospitals, if even. Um, you know, making them pay upfront, uh, all in cash, knowing that a lot of people don't have um, that kind of money. Uh, these tactics where it's not written, you know, that you'd be like, oh, hey, you know, this, but this is where we need to elevate the Palestinian voices and really understand the struggle of what's happening. And a lot of people, um, majority of which are Jewish people because they're the ones who have freedom of movement the most, who have visited occupied Palestine or who have visited um, Gaza before um, the blockade, have talked about the horrendous circumstances they live and how they were in this bubble where it's like, oh, um, the only democracy in the Middle East, beautiful, you know, vacation destination, beautiful beaches, beautiful, um, amazing food, blah, 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 all that great stuff, you know, that really is appealing to the Western world. But they're like, if any Zionist would go and live there or just visit for a couple of weeks and not come out a different person, that's like virtually impossible. That, that means like you're a psychopath. There's something wrong with you. Like you cannot walk in and see the things that they've seen and be okay with it. It's, it, it's just the dehumanization, the humiliation, the trying to strip us of our dignity. It's just next level, you know? And it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting trying to justify, like explain to people why you deserve to live. It's basically that bottom line. Hmm. And I just keep reflecting of all the privilege as a person with diabetes living in a place where I have access to all that, you know, it's like, I don't like my endocrinologist or he, I don't, I don't know. He doesn't believe that dairy is going to raise my blood sugar. I'm going to go find another endocrinologist. Well, reality check, you know, Gaza, there are no endocrinologists or they don't have access to the information we have. Like Eritrea, you've seen the conversation, like some of the, the things that we consider basic resources and basic information that we just know in the diabetes community, a lot of them don't have access to that from their healthcare providers. Yes, some have access to it from like social media and from us, the link to the outside world, which is also somewhat sometimes controlled by the Israeli government. But like, imagine the level of care or how are you able to manage your diabetes under those circumstances? And it's not an equal fight, you know? It's like, oh, both sides. No, don't tell me both sides. When we talk about the, the Israeli side, they have the leading technology in healthcare. Yeah, and they have some of the most advanced um, technologies and advancements when it does come to diabetes as well. And they have universal healthcare, which is another topic that we need to ask ourselves as, as people living in America. I'm not an American, but I live and I pay taxes. But as, as Americans living in America, is 
we don't have access to healthcare, one, uh, to universal healthcare. One in four people who have diabetes are rationing their insulin because they can't afford their insulin. Yet we continue to pay $3.8 billion every year to fund this war, to fuel their economy. What about our economy? What about our people? People who have no access to insulin, to basic healthcare. And this is just in the healthcare realm. Not to talk about the, the homeless people who have no, like the, most of the reason why they end up on the streets is because a lot of them are war veterans and have no access to mental health um, resources or people who live in horrible um, like socioeconomic situations due to underserved communities, due to the systems failing them. Why is this happening in the world, quote unquote, world, power country of the world you know what aren't aren't the american people more justified in that 3.8 billion dollar every year that's our tax money we pay that money we need we should be voicing our opinion telling them that we want that money why are people like people are dying because they can't afford whether it's chemo whether it's insulin whether it's anything you know that shouldn't be happening, especially not in America. Yeah, when I read, no copy. when I read, uh, you know, stats about, you know, one in three Americans don't have five hundred dollars saved. One in, yeah. and then I'm like, okay, well, one in three Americans live with diabetes. So, what's going to happen if they lose their job or if they get in a car wreck? Like they've got to decide between insulin or, and even if they get insulin, then it's pump supplies or syringes or test strips uh, and the cost of diabetes in general. And, you know, what if they have to decide between their kids eating lunch for the week and them living in, in their medical supplies? Like those are, those are decisions that people are, are, are forced to make. I feel lucky to live here because I, and I say this in our group, nor knows, but like, you can't just have a big mouth for a fun time. Like you gotta, you gotta use that American citizenship when you can, homie. Use that privilege to open that big old mouth of yours and speak up for people who can't speak up for themselves. Speak up for people who do live in open air prisons or even in countries like Kuwait, where you're not, or in places like Kuwait, where you're not even allowed to talk about this at all. Yeah, like you're a not lot of places to... like that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, something that I heard early on a couple of weeks ago was like, especially in. Um, you know, in the Middle East and in a lot of places that we've talked about, Demo democracy as we know it is hard to come by. And you know, free speech and those those types of rights that we enjoy here in America, uh, many people in Palestine and elsewhere don't enjoy those and don't have those rights. And so we are very privileged. Nor we were just saying what uh, we were thanking you uh, for coming on the show today and for for sharing oh, you. uh, your story and for for shining light on so many important issues. Uh, you know, again, can't can't thank you enough for coming on and, and being so vulnerable. Where can people find you? Uh, plug yourself. Let's let people uh, reach out to you on, online. Where 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 can we direct them? That's a very good question. Um, I'm on Instagram. That's like my most active platform. But uh, in all honesty, there's not a lot of diabetes content <laughs> on my Instagram. It's a lot of uh, social justice work. Um, I volunteer a lot well, in the diabetes space and also with underserved, uh, vulnerable populations. Um, so a lot of my content is that. And then my kids, uh, Eritrea, do you have my handle? My phone turned off. Um, it's N underscore Al-Ramahi, A-L-R-A-M-A-H-I. 
I got you, Noor. Well, I'll put you in I'll, there. I'll put you in the show notes for sure. And we'll tag her in the show notes. Um, I'm so grateful to you. I just want to say Noor is the person who taught me to open up about my stories, my things. She's an inspiration to me, a light to us all. And I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for telling us your story. I love you. And thanks for taking the thank extra time. So this was a long much. episode, and we uh, but I, you know, every at every step was riveting. So thank you. Thank you both. Like I really, uh, I really admire your um, courage and also um, for being teachable, you know, that's also a huge step and I really appreciate that and um, thank you for it. So 